Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And we're very excited that you're joining us this week because Marianne's guest is someone who we have met since moving here to Rochester. And we're so excited about her work. Pearl Brunt is a plant-based food and environmental enthusiast and an international business consultant. She's doing something that I expect we're going to be seeing a lot more of in the future. She's running for office in her local government. If you have ever thought about throwing your hat in the political ring with plant-based being part of your platform, this is the interview for you. It's so cool, isn't it? Like, I'm just so excited about it. Uh, I also spoke to her on the um, Flock bonus segment. So uh, if you're in the Flock, make sure you check that out. And if you're a Flock member, you'll get the link to that segment in your email on the Tuesday after this goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock you can and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you're in the flock already, please join us for our flock Friday first Zoom calls. I'm always going to change around the the order of those words. Right. Flock How about the Zoom Friday. Friday flock firsts? How about the Zoom Friday calls first fr- flock, which are once <laughs> once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern or 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time where we focus on how to be better activists, how to take care of ourselves. And we speak to some very inspiring podcast guests who you all want to hear more from. So it's a very intimate discussion and it's always lovely. If you ever wish when you're listening to an interview, if you ever think all the questions she's asking are really stupid, I want (laughs) to ask a good question. This is your opportunity. Perfect. That's such great advertisement for joining the flock. <laughs> if you think we're really stupid, join the you flock can, and yeah, correct us. It, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, if you want to become a member of the flock, then you can go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And if you want to find out when these first flock Friday Zoom call Friday firsts are, then check out the Facebook group. Uh, Oh, and by the way, if you're in the flock, you could also schedule one-on-ones with me to talk about your activism and your veganism. I'm doing about one. But you don't don't have to, but you can. You don't have to schedule a one-on-one with me. I don't want people to think it's a requirement. No, if you don't, I just show up at your door one day randomly (laughs) and knock on your door and I say, hey, so do you want to talk? No, I don't do that. So anyway, there's a lot to discuss actually in the news. So let's just jump right in to that. I don't know whether there's a lot, but there's one story that came out this week. Maybe some of you have seen it, which I'm not sure it got that much play in the mainstream press, but I thought it was huge, huge news. And uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I I thought it was huge news too. Yeah, absolutely. So this is where the USDA... Uh, not everybody's favorite government agency, awarded $10 million to Tufts University to establish a cultivated protein center of excellence. And this is just something that we've all been waiting for for a long time. And the Good Food Institute, I'm sure, was very, uh, very much a part of developing this grant. And, you know, $10 million, and it's $10 million over five years. It ain't a fortune when you think of how much money goes to goes to uh, animal agriculture from the USDA. But it's a start that government money is going to produce these alternatives to slaughter-based meat. I think it can only grow. And it's not, it, it, 
Tufts is, is at the center, but it also involves a bunch of other universities, Virginia Tech, Virginia State, University of California, Davis, MIT, University of Massachusetts. And, you know, they're going to develop this program to figure out more about how to make this stuff and how to how to get it out there and how to make it cheap. So I think it's huge, huge news. Yeah, it's these are this is one of those things where like if you're hearing us talk about this and you didn't know about it and you're going, oh, uh-huh, okay, that's cool. No, like this is not something we would have reported on a few years ago. This is one of these big moments where it's like when KFC started having vegan chicken options, like you kind of pinch yourself and you're like, wait, is yeah. this true? Is this a, wait, this is real? Like this is an April Fool's because. No, if you've been, if you've been doing this stuff for a while, it, you know, you, you know, it's, it's like a big step forward to get government money in there. And let's let's make sure that government money grows and grows and grows. It's also indicative of a sh- of a industry wide shift, I would say. I mean, maybe that's too hopeful. But this yeah, is I the think kind it's too thing. hopeful. <laughs> All right. But this is the now kind I think of- you're getting carried away. I mean, I like to be optimistic sometimes. It's all I've got. You know, like I, uh, I think that it's possible that, that you see a ricochet of of other programs in order to burst in order to burst your bubble which is getting uh, a little big i will talk i will talk about this article which came out like the next day i don't know do they have it waiting to go it's not an it's an opinion piece in the new york times by one spencer bocat lindell and it's can lab grown burgers help stop climate change which seems like you know that's a timely question and this is it's part of this section of the news paper called debatable they're 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 trying to invoke debate on various things and it starts out great he talks about about uh americans are top eaters of beef he talks about all of the problems with meat consumption that it's gotten so huge that the climate the climate change implications but also the pandemic implications unbelievable he mentions animal welfare quote you don't have to believe that eating meat is per se immoral well you should but you don't have to to object to the incalculable suffering factory farming inflicts on billions of animals including human workers he had to get the humans in there every year uh, antibiotic resistance, foodborne illness. He's got it all. Like, you know, completely condemning meat. So you ask, why? Uh, yeah, do I like, not sound okay, great. Happier? I mean, let's, <laughs> let's just move to the interview now with Pearl. And then he, he talks about the hurdles that, that lab grown meat, which is what he calls it. He doesn't call it cultivated meat, which is what, you know, everybody wants to call it. So he talks about the obstacles and the stuff you've talked about. You, we've heard, We've heard about the scaffolding, you know, which is the thing you need to develop the right texture. It's not quite there yet. Scaling is going to be hard. It's still way too expensive. But, you know, we know all of that. He talks about Ezra Klein and how enthusiastic he is about it. And uh, still waiting for the problem. And then he gets to uh, citing these scientists who who say that it's never going to happen. It's completely ludicrous. That's the actual word, ludicrous. And, you know, okay, he has kind of set forth one side. And then now he's setting forth, you know, some criticism. And it's pretty bad criticism. I mean, basically the implication is that, you know, this isn't going to happen. And then his next section is we could also just eat less meat. Well, yeah, we've heard that before, haven't we? Does not mention things like the all of the plant-based substitutes that are that I think are just perfectly good enough <laughs> without cultivated meat to replace meat. But you know, 
Nobody listens to me. He doesn't mention them, but just talks about how, oh, we should be eating less meat. Brazil's doing it. We should do it too. And then he talks about the New York Times. This is where, all right. I, I know I've built up for a long time. New York Times food columnist, Melissa Clark, and she wrote her recent Meat Lover's Guide to Eating Less Meat. And she decided following the World Resource Institute's recommendations to focus more on chicken, pork, and seafood, especially mollusks, than beef and lamb. I don't, so far, I'm not sure how we're eating less meat. We're just eating different kinds of meat. So yeah, then he, he closes with a quote from her. All right, everybody steal yourselves. I like to loosely think of my approach as mindful meat eating. Now, when I do simmer up a pot of beef short ribs or smear cream cheese on my bagel or go for sushi, I'm thoughtful and deliberate about it, which makes it taste even more delicious, seasoned with anticipation. And that is how this fucking column ends. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks for bringing me over to that, to the ledge. (laughs) Cause I was with you for the beginning part. I was like, wow, this guy really gets it, but it's like he needs to reassert what society at large is constantly reasserting. Totally. I mean, does not talk about substituting anything for meat, just talks about being mindful when you eat it. You know what it reminds me of? Yeah, mindful. Mindful. It reminds me of this like sort of life coach-esque, life coach adjacent sort of mindset about like, you could do whatever you want. Just be intentional about it. Like if you want to make that mistake, just make that mistake, but like know that you're going to, and then you'll feel okay about it because it was intentional. Like there's something so, I don't know. I've actually never heard that advice, but yeah, you're exactly right. (laughs) This, uh, this, this woman has obviously gone to that life coach as long as, as long as she, she is thoughtful and deliberate about it. It's fine. (laughs) I mean, you could justify anything. Not even like eating, eating chickens or pigs, which, you know, according to her is better or seafood. Unbelievable. It's always so awful when she's talking about feeling better about eating beef itself. I'm shouting. You are. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everybody. Well, our audio, our editor, Eric, can bring down your volume. Yeah, tone it down. Tone it down. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's just like a gut punch when you hear people really understand, like they get it, and then they try and justify themselves, but like they do it in a just way that makes absolutely no sense. It's just yeah, this this makes no sense, and you get the feeling that anybody who read read this article who's not vegan is like. F- full of tension during the part where where yeah. the author is talking about everything going on for animals and then oh thank god just so relieved once yeah. they learn they can eat animals intentionally i can basically do whatever i want yeah yeah, yeah. unbelievable all right well thankfully we have reasons to hope and i love well, you know i do think there's something all right i'm really i'm really reaching here but there is something to be said for the fact that he laid out all the problems. The fact that he then lets everybody off the hook about doing anything is infuriating. But the fact is, is that they didn't used to lay out all the problems. So can we count that as a step forward? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I am in the middle of this article uh, that I'm writing for VegNews.com about why every vegan needs to move to Rochester. <laughs> Oh, good. Come on. Come on down, everybody. Come on up, everybody. One of the 
Well, down if you live in Canada. But actually, if you're living True. in Canada, stay there. Don't yeah. Come here. What are you, crazy? <laughs> anyway, um, so I was, or maybe some folks, no, that doesn't make sense. I was going to like, I was going to say maybe some folks in Buffalo could come down to Rochester, but Buffalo is also a climate refuge city. So yeah. And it's also, it's kind of a cross. It's not really. Right. Really north of you. Yeah, that's true. But anyway, the reason I brought that up was because I was writing about climate change and how Rochester is a climate refugee city and how it doesn't get extreme weather and it's not as susceptible to some of these catastrophic incidents that have already started happening and are just going to get so much worse. And I was looking for some way of connecting that to veganism. And I was like, well, okay, obviously I'll talk about animal agriculture. And I was looking for some current uh, articles in some mainstream. Uh, outlets that I could link to. And then I saw this article and I was like, oh, good. I'll link to the New York Times because they really lay it out, like how bad it is for for the climate with with what's going on to animal for animals. But then it pivots and it's like, just like eat them, just be intentional about it and eat them. (laughs) And they'll be even more delicious because you're intentional. Stop it. I'll stop. I'll stop. All right. Let's and I, to- I do want to say I want you all to move to Rochester. I want a huge vegan community. And there is no extreme weather here unless you count really a lot of snow as extreme weather. <laughs> I just yeah. thought in the interests of honesty, we should put that. It's manageable, though. And when the thing yeah. about what the, the thing about when there's a lot of snow is that the city, it, the city deals with it and the city is actually built for it. So yeah. it's it's not like, you know, it, living in the midst of a lot of snow and nobody has any idea what to do. But like you said, the city, the city plows it. That doesn't happen. I mean, they plow the sidewalks. Like what? That's yeah, amazing. no, every, most places plow the streets. But in Rochester, yeah. they actually plow the sidewalks. Yeah, I, fa- I was pretty shocked by that. It kind of scared me. But <laughs> yeah. but I, it is true that when it comes to snow and I've lived in very snowy places before, it's better to be in a place even if it gets a lot of snow where they always get a lot of snow and they know what to do with it, then to be like in Atlanta or something where if it's, or or remember last year in Texas, they had snow and like, you know, an inch will paralyze the city because, because they don't have any equipment. So, so yeah, Yeah. don't move to Texas, move to Rochester. But before we get to the interview, I just want to tell you one like very quick personal thing. I think I mentioned that I was cast in a short film that shoots in Rochester. And by the time this airs, I will have already recorded it. So I'll let you know how it goes. I let them know I was vegan. I think they were pretty thrown by it because, it, you know, craft services, like it includes food. And so they're just trying really hard to accommodate me. And they're like, can you tell us what what vegan restaurants you go to that you like? And my shoot is at 9.30 p.m. And I'm thinking like, I generally don't eat that late. But, you know, like it's a middle of the night shoot. And I was thinking like, I'm just going to tell them like everything I want. (laughs) But now I feel like, oh, do I eat it? Anyway, I just got a call from the director and he's like, so what do you want from this one restaurant? And I was like, this is so sweet of them, but it seems ridiculous. Why, I know. Like, why are they buying you dinner? Well, <laughs> I think that they, they're going to have a snack table. And I'm thinking like this, this dude doesn't know he could buy like hummus and crackers and it yeah. would be fine. But yeah. I didn't tell him that. Instead, I was like, I would like the macadamia nut cheese plate from the Red I, Bird. I, I don't I, I don't know what to think <laughs> of this. I'm not sure. But, no, okay. it's like advocacy, truly. Like, I am being, I, first of all, I'm not being paid for it. Like, this is, I, I'm just doing it for my real and for 
and I get food. So I was like, I'm getting the food. Everyone else is going to be eating non-vegan food around me. I want the yeah, food. All right. All right. You, you should make over? sure it's good. You, okay. you should make sure it's good. Exactly. So the macadamia nut cheese from Red Fur. Well, let, I'll let you know what happens. All okay. Right. Let's get to the interview. First, as a reminder, our hen house doesn't endorse political candidates. Pearl Brunt is, in fact, a political candidate for the Pittsford, New York town board, which is right outside of Rochester, by the way. She is also an international management consultant, an educator, a mother of two, a vegan food blogger, and a passionate plant-based advocate. Pearl will be joining Marianne right after this. Have you heard the news? Afro-Vegan Society is excited to announce that we're back for the second year with the National Afro-Vegan Virtual Conference. Join us on Saturday, November 13th for our free virtual summit featuring live panels, interviews, and cooking demos exploring how we can create a more just and sustainable future for ourselves, our communities, and our world through compassionate vegan living. You won't want to miss out on the chance to learn from respected Black vegan experts, including Dr. Milton Mills, author Tracy McWhorter, filmmaker John Lewis, the badass vegan, Chef Joya, and more. Plus, we'll be kicking it all off with a virtual vegan happy hour on Friday, November 12th. So don't wait. Register for free today at afroveganSociety.org forward slash events. That's afroveganSociety.org forward slash events. See you there. Welcome to our Hen House Pearl. Hi, thank you for having me. It's really exciting to have you. We just really got to know you and found out about you. And we're so excited about the work that you're doing. And I'm so glad we were able to put together this interview. I do want to go into your background and how you got here, where you are. But let's start off kind of, so our listeners can start off the way I did, finding out about your run for town board of Pittsford, New York, and and basically on a plant-based platform, which kind of blew my mind. And this, of course, isn't the only issue. I I know this is the only issue you're focused on, but it does kind of seem like a centerpiece. So can you explain um, why you focus on plant-based food as such an important part of your campaign? Yes. And it's so funny you say that because I don't know that plant-based food is like the hugest part. I didn't do it intentionally. Like when I sat down and thought, one is going to be my center talking piece. Rather, when I decided to run like everything, I just said, you know what? I'm going to be myself and I'm going to talk about the things that are really important to me and the things that I want to put forward into the world. And one of those things happens to be food advocacy. It's really difficult to talk about real sustainability and real change without addressing the things that people can do on a daily basis to help effectuate that change. And one of the reasons why I became vegan is because I read a book that told me, All of the things that meat is doing to our planet and to other animals and to our bodies and things. And I immediately wanted to get off the roller coaster. And changing my diet was something we make food choices several times a day, every single day. And it's the first thing that I could think of that could make a real difference right now, just me where I am. I love the way you put that because I hear so often that personal action doesn't matter, we need systemic change. But of course, as you're saying, the things that people have to hear what they can do in order to even, or that they can do something in order to even get interested 
in an issue. And I love the fact that you want to run as you and this is an important issue to you. And food is, let's face it, it's kind of what keeps us alive. It's kind of an important topic. But what can, you're running for town board of a town called Pittsford, which is, I guess that you would call it a suburb of, of Rochester. It's a suburb, uh, yes. So what can a town board do to promote good food choices? Is is this just a way that you're telling people who you are? Or do you really think that if you are elected, you can do something about it? I don't want to say that veganism is a gateway drug, but it is one of those <laughs> things where I genuinely believe that once you start thinking about the choices that you're making in one area of your life, it opens the door to start thinking about other things that you can do. And education is always a great place to start. Educating people as to the damage and the harm that can come from these unsustainable practices and farming. Pittsburgh has some of the most fertile farmland. When you think about the damage that can be done with unsustainable farming, thinking about more sustainable farming, I do believe genuinely leads you back to more plant-based farming practices and things. When you think about having a healthy community and you think about people, you say you want to have an active community where people are using transportation like bicycles and walking and even public transportation, it would help if they're healthy enough to ride their bikes and to do that. And plant-based diets do offer a healthier lifestyle. And, you know, I don't want to debate whether or not, where do you get your protein and whether or not you can fully sustain, which you can, a diet that's plant-based. I don't know anyone who says you shouldn't eat more fruits and vegetables. Not one single person disagrees with the fact that everyone on an American diet can jam-pack their diet with a lot more fruits and vegetables. There are so many different benefits besides the nutrition and the fiber and, again, the planet that we're living on and feeding more people instead of feeding animals. There's so many reasons. But when you're looking at a community on a town board level and you think, hey, I want to have a healthy, active community that is really conscientious about what we're doing to our planet, I think educating people about plant-based diets, educating people about food waste, there's food waste in general accounts for more greenhouse gases than airline travel in the United States. Wow. It's facts like that that's mind-blowing, that people don't have that information. But even once you get that information, it is really easy to feel daunted and overwhelmed and not knowing where to begin. And again, taking that first step is, is a great place to start. And when you have food and you have a plate of delicious food, that makes a difference because no one wants to suffer. It's hard. No one wants to get out of their comfort zone. Change is hard. It's funny. I was at the Eat Plants, Save the Planet event that I had, and I'm advocating whole food, plant-based diets. And someone mentioned oil-free diet. And immediately I was like, ooh, I don't know. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't go oil-free. <laughs> and it's so funny because I'm constantly challenging people to think differently about their meals. But the second I'm challenged with something that I really enjoy, my sesame oil and olive oil and things, I was like, ooh, I can't do it. I just enjoy it too much. And that's the natural state of human beings, I think, is change, even if it's good change or you can see it, there is a resistance to it. Yeah, I just think that the idea that you're running for election, as you said, not specifically on this platform, but talking about this is is, is just incredibly empowering. It is, it is true that, you know, you're not talking about imposing food choices on people. You're just bringing food into the conversation and it, explaining to people how hugely important it is 
the, I know you're also running on related issues. And a lot of them, I mean, you, obviously, you're very focused on environmental issues and about pesticides and, and promoting organic gardens. Do you see all of these things as interrelated? And are there some things you can do as a town board member that will help promote the ability of people to make these shifts? Yes. And I think really that's the crux of my proposition for town board really is I think it's the prerogative of town board to enable an infrastructure that allows people to make better choices. And I'm not saying we should force people to make choices. We shouldn't force people to say you should never use pesticides, particularly farmers, because I don't know, maybe in some places, whatever you use, because pesticides is a big thing. What do you classify as pesticides? Is it just chemicals? Some chemicals should never, ever be used. But when you start to have a policy and you prohibit things and you do a blanket across the board, you run into issues and unforeseen problems. However, I do genuinely believe that most people, when given option A or option B, where option A is that you can make a choice that is better for the environment, better for your health, Or option B, you can make a choice that is more harmful to everyone in the community. Most people would choose option A. The things that, and so you have to think what's stopping people from making these choices and then work backwards into figuring out how can we make option A the feasible, practical choice for people. So yes, no one, everyone knows when you get into your car, you're polluting the earth when you go down the road. But also people have children and they have to get to soccer practice and they have to get to work and they have groceries. So what's the solution? So we need to figure out, okay, well, what if we had a shuttle that ran from neighborhoods to the market? Or what if, again, cycling, we had more safe roads where people could get there more easily? What are the things that we can do? And it's not to say that I have all of the answers right now, but certainly we need to look at the two options. And why aren't people making the earth-friendly option more regularly? And whatever those reasons are, we need to address them. Yeah, I just love that. I love that you're a good, you're such a good communicator. Politics is definitely where you should be. And I love the fact that you're saying this about all these issues. And one of the issues you're saying about it is food. That's just so empowering. I have a quote here. You have said that diversity and inclusion, which are also important issues on your campaign, should be about culture, not just demographics. I love that quote. And it just makes it sound like diversity and inclusion are going to be a lot of fun, (laughs) to tell you the truth, even though we know there is very hard work to be done there. Like learning about other people's culture is definitely, you know, something that people enjoy doing. So I love the way you put things in a positive way. But can you expand a little on that and perhaps specifically related to food, which after all is one of the most important parts of everybody's culture? Okay, sure. And maybe I I think you may have gone through this in my background, but Uh, A foreign relations consultant, I've spent my career working with people, international companies, different teams and managing, helping them understand things. And one of the biggest things that I love is the food aspect because food, not just what you eat, but how you eat it and when you eat it and the ability to sit down at a table and relate to people. So much of business, especially when you're meeting new companies for the first time and you're trying to form relationships with people, actually happens around a table where you sit down and breaking bread with someone has such strong cultural connotations to it, where if you're going to sit down and break bread with someone, you're going to share food with someone, that is a relationship building thing. So really, the other thing that I love about food as a cultural thing is that 
I did three degrees. I, I did four years for my bachelor's in political science. I did a master's in international relations and diplomacy. I did an MBA in international business. I considered myself an educated person until I read this one book, which was The Kind Diet. And I learned I knew nothing about the food that I was eating. And not only was I completely shocked at the information there within, but I had to do some soul searching. How did I go through my entire life without really questioning where my food came from? And it's that type of thought process where I know I'm not the only one. There's so many things that just like other cultural aspects where they're your template. That's how you were raised. You don't question it. Things are the way they are. And you go through your life without thinking about it. And this is how we have things like unconscious bias. Things are the way they are. That's how you're raised. And you don't even realize all of these different narratives that you've absorbed, that you walk through your life doing and behaving based on these narratives that you never considered as an adult. Because again, as a child, you're just pouring in all this information. And I homeschool my kids too. So the learning process and the way that you absorb things, and even with my own kids that I homeschool and I'm with so much of the day, sometimes they say really surprising things to me. Like, I'm not going to need a mother when I grow up. I was like, what? Where do you get that? You don't have a mother. <laughs> like my four-year-old, she's like, you don't have a mother. I was like, oh, because my mother passed away. And I never spoke about my mother because it was sad and you were four years old. So I, I don't know when I was planning on saying, hey, by the way, your grandma died. But I didn't. And the absence of that conversation formed a conclusion in my four-year-old's head that Mothers go away when you're an adult because she didn't see my mother. So obviously that's not a thing you need as an adult, which is a false conclusion. So how many of those false conclusions do people have just through the process of being? And so many of these are around food as well. And some of them are manufactured because you have farms and agricultural people with happy cows and happy chickens. And so you think, you know, it's like, oh yeah, that's a farm. And you go to petting zoos and you do all these things. And you know nothing about the life of these animals. You know nothing about the antibiotics that are poisoning our system, our waterways, us, that are creating superbugs. There's just so many different levels to community health related to animal issues that need to be addressed. I totally agree with you. And I really like that you brought up your past because I really wanted to explore that. And I, I want to talk about your career, which has been really pretty remarkable. You've covered a lot of ground. But can we start a little further back and talk about your childhood and where you grew up and what kind of food you were eating then? So I grew up in um, a small town in Kansas. And my mother is from Chicago and my father was from North Carolina. And they came from both really big families. And so we had really traditional Southern Black American food. I never cared for meat. And I, my mom used to have to hide it. Like she would always cook pork chops and pig feet and different, like I never ate the, it was just all these foods. If I saw bone, if I saw blood, if I saw fat or gristle, forget it. It's not happening. My mom would have to pick out everything. And even then, I didn't love it. But over the course of time, by the time I was a teenager, I ate it because for years and years and years, I was told I had to eat it. And then eventually, I started eating it and I stopped thinking about it. 
I mean, you're talking about kind of a classic soul food kind of cuisine, mm-hmm. which, you know, is very precious to so many black people. And yet, do you feel that that black people are particularly burdened by the unhealthiness of our food system and not just the traditional soul food diet, but the whole deal? Is it is it a particularly heavy burden? Of course it is. I mean, if you look at the health demographics of diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol, all of it, it's because of the food. And how many people of color are living in food deserts where even if they wanted to go out and get fresh food, there aren't places in their neighborhoods to do so? How many people don't have access to them because they don't have cars and taking the bus. Like for instance, they just rezoned Rochester with different areas. So within your zone, you can take the bus for a dollar. But there are zones in Rochester where within your zone, you can't get to a grocery store that has fresh fruit and vegetables and you're stuck with a corner store shopping. Also, when you look at the food and how how much food costs, I I was a teenager the first time I had fresh green beans. And I was at a high school program where they took us to a fancy restaurant and I was like, what is this? And they're like, it's green beans. My mom always made green beans with canned green beans, bacon fat, and pearl onions. And in fact, almost everything, all of the vegetables that I had was lathered in fat. It was butter on the corn. And again, the corn was more than likely canned corn. You had uh, lard. My mom would reserve the fat from when she'd fry things and we'd reuse it several times. And these, it's really interesting because this is one of those crossovers where Black culture and poverty overlap. And sometimes the two things are confused, where there are so many people of color in poverty that a lot of our culture, our ethnic culture, relates to the things that you did because you had nothing. And again, reusing your fat several times because you didn't have money to buy more or things like we, and again, one of the things that I know my mom did was we would go to the grocery store and we would buy a big box of meat that was about to expire. So this is all of the stuff that was just about to go off a date And my mom would buy that as cheap as possible and freeze it. And that's what we would eat for the month. So between the boxed meat, the frozen meat, canned vegetables, and quite frankly, a lot of kindness from other people, um, charities that would donate food, churches that had food cupboards, you can kind of eat what you're given. Yeah, of course. And, and, And I think that soul food is rightfully respected as a heroic effort to turn hard times into something palatable. and But there's no denying that as a result of that, there's a great deal of unhealthiness within that kind of food. And yet Black veganism, well, perhaps because of that, Black veganism has taken off like gangbusters. Do you see the Black community as a growing leader in transferring our food system to something healthier? I think that in general... One of the things about veganism that I love is that it deals with money, right? You know, not spending your money. I'm a firm believer in the dollar vote. 
So when you stop purchasing animal products, you're sending a signal saying, we don't want that. We don't agree with what you're doing and we're going to stop. And eventually, and we've seen such a change in the availability of vegan products now where people are starting to invest more time and it's a knock-on effect. And I think one of the things that people forget is that people of color, while a lot of them are in poverty, Actually, there's so many of us, it counts for a large part of the economy when people are spending and making choices. So yes, absolutely, I believe that people of color and having soul food, and also I think just having a diversity of cuisines makes it accessible to everyone and it's going to do its part. And to that point, when you have the diversity of cuisines and the different foods, it makes it not just a hippie yoga young person thing. Yeah. You know, and again, taking that back is it's not just for one set of people. It's really for everyone. I I think that like is hugely, hugely important. And and also the idea that every cuisine has has health problems in it and every cuisine has meat in it. Like there's and the prospect of preserving those traditions while making the food healthier and kinder and, and better for the world. I think it's an, an exciting adventure. And I do feel like Black veganism is really leading that charge. They are not trying to be like hippies, uh, <laughs> hippie food. They're, they're trying to create a specifically Black vegan cuisine. And I, I love to see ev- everybody doing that. I, I think it's a very exciting project. And I think that the way you talk about it is very inspiring. And I'm just kind of, you, you mentioned that you were an international business consultant, but I don't think you did mention that you lived in Europe for a long time. Do you think that gave you a new perspective on how you see these issues? I mean, particularly food, perhaps. I think you lived in France for a while and they are known to, to like be interested in food, though their food is certainly not vegan, but still it starts you thinking. And also perhaps even more importantly, you were talking about how we just get into these like these thought patterns and never get ourselves out of them. Do you think that living in another place gave you an opportunity to see things from the outside? Oh, absolutely. There are two main lessons that I learned living abroad. I lived in Germany for two years. I lived in Paris for two years and I lived in England for about eight or nine years. And one, I learned that you have to have an open mind. There are so many different ways to flush a toilet in Europe. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) And again, it's one of those things you just don't think about. But when you go to the restroom and you have to really observe your surroundings to figure out how to finish the job, you can press a button on the floor. You can pull a chain. You can twist. You can pull. It's it's a thing. There, are, I, I can count like at least seven different ways. Again, when you open the bathroom door and you go in, you think you've got it all figured out, <laughs> and <laughs> then you don't. And something as basic and as simple as that. Again, I I really went through this process of, wow, what else don't I know? I know there's a lot I don't know, and. I'm not going to assume. I've stopped assuming I know anything about anything anymore. It's like, I want to listen. You tell me, and I can put that together with my background knowledge before I form an opinion about anything these days. But the other thing I realized is that there's always a sense of community, but somehow, and I think it's human nature, people like to put themselves as us and them. 
So wherever I, I've been, there has been a community, but then there's also been people outside of that community. And it's changed. It's changed so many times. So in England, there was a lot of people who came from the eastern part of Europe, people from Poland, for example, that were often treated as other in the communities. And Paris, there were a lot of Turkish people and Moroccans. And, you know, in, in America, it's Mexicans and other people of color. No matter where I've been, it's always changed. And I realized as well that I stopped filling out the form when you have to take your ethnicity on forms because for my whole life, I was either Black American or African American. And then I went to Germany and I was like, well, what do I take? And then I went, because they don't have those options. And when I was in France, they don't have those options. And when I was in England, they don't have African American as an option. I just started putting, I'm American. And unless you're a medical questionnaire, I don't think it's relevant any other way. And again, I feel like it was really an awakening of my perspective and just opening my mind to so many different things, including food, including in France, I really got into those smelly cheeses, which I turned my nose up because they smell really badly. And then I started enjoying them. And this is before I became a vegan years before. And Probably it was the last thing that went as well before I finally kind of gave up. It was the cheese. And I, I think I've heard this a lot. It, it was the cheese. And I love that when you look at foods like that, it has like such a meaning because when I think of cheese, I remember I used to eat blocks of it, just the, you know, sharp cheddar cheese from Kraft as a child. And moving into, I guess, more of a sophisticated palate in Paris having a bit of cheese, like nice cheese with a glass of wine and bread. Again, culturally, that was a really relaxing, enjoyable time. It's something that, hey, at the end of the day, go grab a nice baguette with my husband, even even now, because there are a lot of really delicious cultured cashew cheeses. It's still the same thing. So I've replaced that aspect of it with cashew cheese with instead of the cow cheese, However, the ritual around enjoying it stays the same. Exactly. I think that's so important and people just don't understand that. You know, they they talk about, oh, well, I would miss, you know, every single, they act like this is the only culture that eats meat and I would miss this or I'd miss that. But of course, we can, we can fiddle with the details. We still, we're not going to lose the meaning, the cultural meaning. So you mentioned, but we haven't talked about how you started your personal plant-based journey. Apparently it was with KIND and about your advocacy. I mean, you didn't just start being an advocate when you started running for office. That's That's been the culmination of really a very active advocacy career. Can you Can you talk about it a little bit? So I thought, I mentioned all of the degrees that I did. I, I thought I was on this big career path. I started my own business right out of business school. And I mean, I was young. I traveled. People paid me to travel for work. I loved it. I, I was having a great time. Got married, got pregnant, had a baby and thought, oh, I kind of want to stay home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so and in England, you have up to 12 months of maternity leave. So I took six months. I thought I was going to take six months. I got to the six-month point and I took a year. And I don't know. I thought, you know what? I have all of this time. I'm going to make my own baby food. And I ordered this, a bunch of cookbooks because I'm, I'm a learner. I ordered a bunch of cookbooks on Amazon and one of them was The Kind Diet. I was like, oh, what is this? I didn't, uh, whatever. So I read it and I was like, oh my goodness. 
And I was like, Pete, you have to read this. Pete's my husband. I was like, you have to read this. And we read it. And then we must have YouTubed for like three weeks <laughs> about uh, veganism, veganism and the planet, like uh, the documentaries you watch. And it's just one of those things. It's like, you know what? We can't. We just can't do this anymore. And I probably did it the wrong way. And I guess I don't know if I, I, I don't know the best way to do it. I don't know that I recommend this to anyone, but I think, you know, we watched a documentary and we saw how animals were treated and we just couldn't anymore. Like, you know, we turned the TV off. I went into the kitchen and I just threw out everything that had animal products in it. And again, it's really interesting. I say it's kind of like a gateway thing where I initially, when I read about the impact of raising animals, the deforestation, the carbon footprint um, of raising animals, that's what made me think I need to be vegan. When I saw the videos of how animals were being treated, that sealed the deal for me. And I say it sealed the deal for me, but it's ish because it was a journey. You, I went and I threw everything out of my kitchen. I was like, and then I realized how much processed food I was eating. Huh. You know, everything that I had had milk products in it. Like I'm reading the back of the labels. And then I realized like how much, like, where is my fresh food? And, you know, you're young. I was in college. My mom had passed. She didn't come and help me set up my kitchen. I don't know. I, I was having boxed meals and different things. And I think we ate out a lot because we, you know, we're young and we just had a baby. So we didn't know better. And, um, I didn't know what to eat for dinner the next day. I was like, okay. <laughs> I threw out all of this food. And then it was like, I had no idea. And we went back and forth. Uh, it was very unhelpful. The doctors, I was very, very concerned as a new mother in particular, because there's so much about not being able to have a healthy diet where you could be vegan or you should be vegetarian. I went to a dietitian because I was really, I mean, I, I'm responsible for the life of this child. Of course. And you can't get it wrong. I just felt like I cannot get this wrong. And she was six months old. She's growing and developing and she needs to have all of the nutrition that she needs for this. If I get it wrong now, I can't go back later and make up for it necessarily. So we went to a dietitian whose response was, well, can't you just give her a little bit of meat? Wow. Yes. That's useful. I mean, there was one whole food store. It wasn't whole foods, but there was one natural food store in town that was super small. Um, and it was actually about 30 minutes away from where we lived. And it had a lot of super processed vegan things. And by a lot, I mean, it was a small store and they didn't really have, again, you weren't going to get your cashew cheese. You're not going to get Miyoko's or anything like that. It was your soy curls, your dried soy curls. Right, right. I get the picture. A little old school. Yes, yes. And I just really had no idea what to do or how to cook. And luckily, because I had so much time, because I was um, on maternity leave, and then I had another baby 13 months apart. So I had two years of maternity leave. Oh, and how then, have, How did you have any time? I, I don't get that part. <laughs> right. And then because I run my own business, I stopped taking new clients and I toned everything down with just a few clients a year and doing projects I really liked. And I cooked. I, I educate. I YouTube was my friend, my best friend, cookbooks. I started referring to people in cookbooks like Chloe Coscarelli was Clo-Clo. <laughs> and <laughs> I, would, I would have a new cookbook. Um, all of them, there are a couple of people that I really, really love that uh, Miyoko, for instance, that 
a lot of my basis for cooking was training myself on the palates and the things and the techniques that they had. And man, we choked down some meals that we ate because we paid <laughs> for the food, not because it was good <laughs> and because we really wanted to. And also there's some times where we went back and forth for several years because you know, we weren't feeling great. We weren't doing it right. We weren't getting all of the nutrition that we needed because we didn't really know what we were doing. And when we went for professional advice, no one in the area where we were in, in England, had any for us. No one could tell us, hey, this is what a healthy plant-based diet looks like. You need to have your nuts and your legumes and as well as your greens and vegetables. And after a while, like, so whenever we felt like, hey, I don't have enough energy. I don't know what we're missing here. I'm not feeling great. We would add back in like yogurt or eggs. I think eggs was our go-to. And then we'd, we'd take, we took a lot of vitamins and I do more research. And then I try again, I'm like, okay, I think I've got it. Let's, let's cut everything out again. And I think I've got it. And really when we finally landed on fresh whole food diet, we're good to go and never had any problems since then. But again, it's one of those things where I think having uh, two small children that I was responsible for and having, I wouldn't even say the courage to stand by my convictions that there has to be a way where we can eat healthily, where we're feeding ourselves and not hurting other living things like the earth and other animals. And I remember one day my husband, we were eating. And again, he he's, we're pretty much the same person. And he was right alongside me um, in this whole journey and just trying to figure it out. And our biggest concern was as long as the kids are getting what they need, I'm happy to try and do anything that will get us there. And so one day we were having this meal and I forget what it was. It's probably um, one of my first meals that came out really well was a, a mushroom pasta with a cashew cream sauce. And he was like, this is delicious. If we can eat this well and not hurt animals, why wouldn't we? And that's kind of been the basis for everything as I move forward. It's like, if we can eat well and not hurt animals, if we can eat well and not hurt the earth, what's stopping us? That says it all. It just says it all. But what I love about what you've done, and you know, I hear you about the struggles. I mean, I've been vegan for a long time. I went through, I was actually, there was a point in my veganism where I actually wasn't getting enough protein. You know, I know we're all asked that all the time and most people poo-poo it, but I actually wasn't. I had my amino acids tested and they were all, so yeah, it's, it's not completely straightforward just moving into a whole new way of eating, but I think it's getting, I mean, if you were in England now, I think you'd have a whole lot easier time than you did then because veganism has grown so much. And I, what I love about what you're doing is that you're not just doing it, you're spreading the word. So other people don't have to go through what you went through in trying to figure it out from scratch. I mean, I know you have the books and everything, but still, it, like changing what you put in your body is a, is a big deal. So one of the things that you started doing was the Twisted Spoon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the Twisted Spoon is, again, one of those things. I just had a bright idea one day where everywhere I went, I would always bring enough food to feed other people. But obviously you go to parties, you go to birthday parties, you're invited places where there's going to be food and 99% of the time, there's not going to be vegan food or people who say things are vegan, but they don't really <laughs> yeah. know what vegan means. Yeah. Like I went to this one birthday party and she's like, no, 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 no. I'll bring food. I'll, I'll make it for you. And she made this uh, Moroccan lamb 
with roasted vegetables, but the vegetables were roasted in the lamb juice. And she goes, oh, no, oh my no, God. it's vegan. It's like, um, no, not really, but thank you so much for trying. But again, it's people don't know. So I just bring my own food everywhere and I bring enough to share with people. And so many people love vegan food. It's crazy. If you say to people on the street, I'm vegan, you get faces. I don't, I don't know if you know the look, but when you say that you're vegan, people kind of like look at you funny. Like, and then they have the questions like, where do you get your protein? Or I'm not sure that's a healthy diet. And I love how people who eat fast food restaurants like McDonald's <laughs> yeah. then start to question what's in your falafel. And it's like, um, what's in your burger? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Have you heard of pink meat? That's crazy. Um, so, but it's one of those things where, but everyone loved it. And then everyone wants to know. And everyone kept asking me questions in every single place I went where people would eat the food. They want to know. And they have comments like, well, if it was this good, I would eat it all of the time. And there are tons of cookbooks. That's how I learned. But I also realized that it was a very special time where I had time to experiment in the kitchen. And I had time to make lots and lots and lots of mistakes. And realistically, it probably took a good five years before I had the techniques and the recipes where I could make a meal in a reasonable amount of time to feed my family on a regular basis. Well, yeah, we don't all have five years and we can't afford for people. To, and I, you know, I think that it really brings up an important issue of it's not just whether the food is good, it's whether the, it, the food is simple. And the issue that you brought up before about so many people living in food deserts like it's not just the time it takes to get to a grocery store. It's just the time it takes to cook. I mean, we one of the goals I think in in advising people about food is how to make a beautiful, elaborate meal and how to make a really fast, simple meal that still hits all the buttons because people are under a lot of stress. That's one of the reasons I love that you've brought this into a into the political sphere because I think there are so many political issues that relate to the pressures on people to eat the wrong food. You know, the only other public official I can think of who's running on a plant-based platform is Eric Adams, uh, who was on the podcast a year or two ago and is running for mayor of New York City. And he's very outspoken about this. I feel like you and he are like the at the helm of a huge trend because he's not trying to hide it at all. And, you know, it's certainly not the most popular thing in the world, but he's almost certainly going to be the next mayor of New York City. So do you expect to see this as a growing platform issue, even though, as you pointed out, there's not necessarily a lot. I mean, he's 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 going to be running New York City. So there's a more that they can do because they've more pull with the school system and, and things where they can really make changes in in the in policy and hospitals. He's working very much with the hospitals. Uh, to try to promote plant-based food. As a town board member, you may not have that kind of clout yet, but do you see this as an issue that's going to have political clout, regardless of how much power there is, just because it's such an important part of people's lives? I think that it's really easy for people to say that they want to live uh, sustainably and to say that, yes, we need a, sustainable policies, we need more earth-friendly policies, and we need to do these things. I think it's more difficult to walk the walk. And I mentioned this before, where I think veganism very much was a gateway drug. We now grow some of our own food and we are trying to be zero waste. Definitely, we're not minimalist yet. It's something that you constantly work towards. It's a journey. But really evaluating, we've gone down to one car, we're one car household. 
and genuinely considering what it is that you can do on a personal level and on a daily basis to make a difference in the world is and making those uncomfortable changes because it's not super, super comfortable to have to drive my husband to work sometimes because I need the car that day. It's not the easiest choice, but it is the best choice for the environment. It's the choice that I want to put forward for my children to say, hey, just because something is easier doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. We need to do what's right for the environment, even if that means we're a bit more uncomfortable or we're taking the shuttle today. We've been taking the shuttle a lot. I was like, hey, we just have to go to the gym or we just have to go to the library. Let's just take the shuttle and your dad can take the car to work. Making those types of changes and adjustments in your personal life and having that mindset, I think it really speaks to the mindset of the person who's going to be making policies and government. So if I'm willing to overturn everything that's going on in my personal life to make good choices, I damn well am going to be looking at policies and things that we can do to make it feasible and practical and manageable. I I just think that's going to be, I mean, I really hope that that it's going to be a growing issue and that even if it's not something that you can change at a governmental level, if people start making those changes at a personal level, they're going to empower government to do more. And I think you just made the perfect example, though it's not about food, but digressing for a moment, like you have that shuttle. If you didn't have the shuttle, you would have to have two cars. So they, they, these things work together, policy and personal change. They work together. Then it's not one or the other. And uh, I love the way that you articulate that. Actually, you are, you're such a great communicator. Like, what is your theory of communication? I mean, clearly, you do not harangue people when you're talking to people about plant-based food. What is your goal? Like, what do you say to yourself how sh- when you're asking yourself, how should I put this? I don't normally. I really go on the theory that no one likes to be made to do anything. I mean, even if it's something that you wanted to do, if someone asks you in a mean way, I'm, I probably wouldn't do it. You know, you didn't ask nicely. Even though I was on my way to the kitchen to get you a beer anyway, if you didn't say it as nicely as I would have liked, I'm not going to do it now. No one <laughs> likes to be made to do anything, right? And I don't think, and I'm really, I think my focus is not to force people to do anything. I think that's a waste of time. I don't want to be right. I want to be effective. And I think for sure, educating people and leading by example and showing people how things can be done. For instance, when I was at the Pittsburgh Farmer's Market this summer, I set up an outdoor kitchen, which was amazing because it was one of those ideas like, man, I wonder if I could do an outdoor kitchen and just, you know, cook for people for free. And they're like, what is that? People I walk by, what is a food advocate? What's a plant-based food advocate? And I said, I'm just cooking for you and showing you how to make vegan food. And people who, I mean, again, some people were super into it, but some people were very much not into it at all. I had people turn their nose up. I had people say, I don't see how you could possibly make these crepes without eggs and milk. And this lady was, she's like, I'm half French. It's not possible. I was like, well, you're free to try it. And she loved it. And she sent me a really lovely message uh, three days later saying that she and her family are open to trying plant-based foods now. And it's just amazing that educating people and offering them something different. And I think this is really part of the problem with 
policies as well is that it's an echo chamber and you have the same antiquated ideas that keep going back and forth between people and not being able to see that there are different options. Um, And with innovation, there's so much innovation that's happening. And again, it's so much easier. When I started out, all of my plant-based milk I had to make myself. I blew out three blenders before I realized I really do have to get that Vitamix in order to make the almond milk and the different things that I wanted to make. But now you could just go to the grocery store and pick up a variety of plant-based milks that you want. So it does, it goes hand in hand and we're coming along together. And it's about education because people, when at least given the options, we'll usually choose the better option. And we just have to make sure, again, like a big thing is money. You have to finance everything. If it costs $3 more to buy milk, sometimes it's just not affordable for people. The milk that I get when I don't make my own is Elmhurst. And while I love it, and it's usually two ingredients, just the water and just the cashews or just the almonds or just the hazelnut, it's also like 5 to $6 for a liter. And that's not affordable for everyone. However, oat milk is, cashew milk is, a blender, you know, so there are, there are lots of different options and different price points. And part of the making it accessible is it has to, you know, be affordable for people. It has to be available in your areas. And I think just educating people and getting the message out there and making it possible for them to make better choices, I think a lot of people would. I think that your philosophy is superb and it it really, really seems to be working because you're making great inroads. I love the kind of advocacy. I love your farmer's market advocacy and I love all you've done for, and and all you're going to do because I really think that we're going to be hearing more from you. And thank you so much for everything you do and for joining us today um, on our Hen House to tell us about it. It's really been great, Pearl. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxiety's arising. All right, this first story. And I want to start off by saying, I think it's possible somebody sent me this story, but and I, and I didn't jot it down, but it's also possible I found it myself. But if you sent it to me, thank you, because it is the worst article I've ever read. I mean, this is unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right, it's from the spec. It's Canadian. Where does your food come from? Livestock farmers share their stories. The Norfolk County Fair. I, I really don't know what to do other than just read big lumps of this. Uh, walk through the cattle barn at the Norfolk County Fair and Horse Show, and you're bound to meet the Krakar sisters. From her seat at the Beef Farmers of Ontario booth, Caitlin Krakar can chat with passersby about the reality of raising cattle while keeping an eye on Venus, a seven-year-old Cheryl Lake cow from Krakar's livestock farm outside Vanessa, who makes an annual appearance at the fair. Gleaming white and visibly pregnant, Venus is a hit with fairgoers. This is a really sad, a really sad line, especially the kids who stop to shyly pet and scratch her head. Yeah, like let's take advantage of children's natural fondness for animals 
to introduce them to the fact that it's okay to mistreat them and kill them. Oh, but of course, we're not we're not mistreating them, are we? She loves the scratches, Caitlin said, smiling under a face mask adorned with cartoon farm animals. Across the barn, Caitlin's younger sister, Emma Krakar, stands beside a new addition to the fair's agricultural awareness program, the Pigmobile. All right, this is apparently this huge shipping container. It has windows on one side, so visitors can see pigs at each stage of their life cycle, from farrowing to finishing. Yeah, notice it's the life cycle. <laughs> show the death cycle. Of course, they don't show the life cycle either. They show the life cycle for these particular pigs, but, you know, uh, not, not for most pigs. All right, they talk about a two-year-old sow who's lying on her side as a passel of two-week-old piglets jostle for space along their mother's udder. These are all her piglets who are nursing on her, Emma said. Well, who, who the fuck did you think they were? All right, sorry. Basically, a piglet's life is nursing, running around and playing and sleeping. Yeah, they really play a lot. Unbe this is unbelievable. This leaves the 500-pound sow pretty well resigned to be a milk buffet lying within the bars of a farrowing crate so she does not inadvertently roll over and crush her offspring. I call it a piglet protection program, Emma said. They could be squished very easily. Like, uh, you know, pigs can't be trusted to, to not roll over on their own young. You know, and it probably is a huge danger because pigs have been bred to be way, way too large. The mother pigs, of course, are allowed to grow to full size. The babies won't ever grow to their full size because they'll be slaughtered when they're infants. So, you know, full-grown pigs, if you've ever been on a farm sanctuary, you know they're... They are very, very large, but still. For three weeks, that will be her life, Emma said. And then she can go back to the pen and socialize. Yeah, it's just, it's just a laugh a minute in those barns. They talk about how they want to get a farmer-to-consumer conversation going. I bet they do. They don't want a consumer-to-farmer conversation, do they? Um, a lot of people think it's all factory farms, but most Canadian farms are family farms. Like, in the first place, as we've said a million times, and as you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, for saying things you know all the time. Like, just because it's owned by a family doesn't mean it's not a factory farm. Like, families, everybody has a family. Like, it's, it's as if you're from a family, you can do no wrong. Canada is, is factory farming central. You know, the Canadians do a lot of things better than the U.S., but factory farming is not one of them. They're also in favor of beef, of course. Talking about the misconceptions around beef, one such misconception, Caitlin said, is the idea that cattle farms have an outsized carbon footprint because her cows graze on marginal land and eat leftover produce. What the f and they do a lot of good to the environment. Like, who wrote this piece of crap? Like, do they not like read any kind of uh, do any kind of research on on what they're talking about? All right. How do you like this line? Pig barns are honestly the safest and most humane farms out there. Biosecurity provides protection for the animals. Emma said it can be said to watch her pigs move on. Move on. That's their word for go to slaughter. But she takes satisfaction in having contributed to their welfare. It can be very hard because you raise them. You put in all this work and are with them for a bunch of months. Yeah, four to six, because that's when they die. And they're all grown up now. Yeah, no, they're not. They're not grown yet. They just are ready to die. They're alive. All right, this is the last line, and it, it's really, it's really unbelievable. They're alive because I was there. <laughs> Sorry. If somebody said this to me, I really, really appreciate it, but you have driven me insane. 
This is by one J.P. Antonacci. And his reporting, according to his little bio, is funded by the Canadian government through its local journalism initiative. Well, somebody needs to sue somebody in Canada because this is outrageous. This is completely outrageous. All right. From Drovers.com, from our our favorite commentator, Hannah Thompson-Weeman, four keys to prevent animal activist attacks in the wake of a disaster. Because, as she starts out, animal rights extremist organizations, that would be you guys, are known for attempting to take advantage of unfortunate situations. Whether it's trying to pin the COVID-19 pandemic on meat consumption. I'm not sure. Did anybody try it? Well, you know, I mean, sort of, because it probably started in a, in a uh, wet market. And, and, and then it grew because of, like, the terrible stuff in slaughterhouses. But really, nobody's saying it's... it's due to meat consumption specifically. Well, I digress. Whether it's trying to pin the COVID-19 pandemic on meat consumption, how do you people put up with me? Being the first to show up at the scene of a trucking accident or taking out billboards after barn fires, they will never let a crisis go to waste. Well, you know, maybe they just like when when you kill animals and horrible things happen to animals because of your irresponsibility, because of the inherent harms of this industry, maybe they think it's worth bringing attention to it. PETA, she points to, um, which is known for trying to get media attention by issuing statements. How dare they? Or installing memorial billboards near accident scenes. The animal save movement frequently arrives early on the scene of transportation accidents involving animals and will try to convince law enforcement to release injured animals to them. Oh, what a disgrace. What a disgrace. They actually show up and try to uh, save injured animals. These people, it's just dreadful. And then she has all this advice. It's the usual crap. Be mindful of anyone claiming to need to inspect the farm for any reason. I love that they're all, I, I love that she gets them all scared of everything. I hope they are. Be vigilant about any requests for information about the incident. Watch for anyone using drones or cameras. Consider any new applications for employment carefully. Yeah, I, I suggest they do all these things. I, obsess, I suggest they get obsessed by it. Obsessed. I hope that, I, I, I suggest that they allow it to drive them nuts. All right. Finally, this is from our friends over at Plant-Based News. Europe's largest meat processor admits it was wrong to underestimate vegan movement. And this is uh, concerning some comments made by the CEO of Danish Crown. Mostly, it's a Danish, obviously, a Danish processing company. Mostly pork, but also beef. And according to this article, the CEO, whose name is Jays Valor, said that Beef will become a luxury item like champagne, and it's become clear to him that the way one consumes and thinks about meat is going to change markedly in the coming years. Well, Jace, you're right. You are absolutely right. They've actually started producing plant-based food. It does sound like a lot of their comments are about beef, and the fact is is that they're mostly a pork company. So I hate to be suspicious, but let's face it, these people are in it for themselves. They also quote uh, another another guy, Michael Minter, who who he's at a think tank, not within the industry, and he agrees that beef will be a luxury product. What kind of luxury is eating a dead cow? I I'd like to know who considers that a luxury. And he find, but but Jace, the um, guy from Danish Crown, uh, I I do like this quote a lot. Said um, the fact that he rejected plant based foods five years ago. And they're now starting to get into the business. He said it was a bit like rejecting the Beatles when they came out. Here, five years later, I would like to admit that we were wrong. 
Well, you know, it's a pretty good sign. It's a lot better than you, you hear from a lot of these these bozos. It's a little weird about the Beatles. How old is this guy? I mean, even I was young when the Beatles first came out. He's got to be younger than me. All right, and that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, you can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.